Good morning, church. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here and glad to have you with us today. Welcome uh, those of you on the live stream. Um, and we are at the last week of the series that we've been doing called Courageous Church, uh, which is based on the book of Daniel during the time of exile. And uh, through the series, we've been talking about how Christians can have courage to stand strong for Christ in changing times. Um, today, we're going to be talking about suffering. And that's relevant since many of you, like me, have been suffering since last Sunday night. Um, so we can have a moment of silence if you'd like to grieve, to reflect, to lament on uh, the un injustice of the referees and the calls that were made against our beloved Bengals. But uh, thank you, Lord. We trust the future is in your hands. No, seriously, we're talking about suffering for our faith. So a, a, a particular kind of suffering, suffering as a result of persecution even. Um, so this is suffering for being a Christian or suffering for acting like a Christian. And we're going to look today at one of the most famous stories in the Bible, probably the most famous story in the book of Daniel, and that's Daniel and the lion's den. So we're going to go over this story. We'll be in Daniel chapter 6. We'll cover the story, and then I want to share three application points with you. So let's dig in. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius, this is the king at the time, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So uh, Daniel had won the favor and trust of the king of Babylon, who's Darius at this time. And so Daniel was set to be put in charge over pretty much the whole kingdom. He's going to be the vice president, the number two, second in command. And his excellence is what distinguished him above all the other people in the kingdom, above all of his peers. So verse 4, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the high officials, the satraps, they were jealous of Daniel. He was now in charge of all of them, but they didn't have any grounds to accuse him of anything. So they knew, uh, they knew about him, right? He'd been, he'd, been in this, uh, he'd been in a position of prominence for a while. So they knew Daniel was a courageous man. They knew he had an uncompromising faith. They knew that he had this unceasing loyalty to God. And so they hatched this clever plan to trap him. To use his faith against him by criminalizing the practice of his faith. Now, he would still be allowed to believe his faith, right? In the, in the inner quiet of his own heart. But they would trap him whenever he tried to exercise his faith publicly. So let's see. Verse 6, we see what this plan is like. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king. So it was a conspiracy. 
They came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So Darius didn't know that there was actually, uh, he was being used, right? They were going to set a trap against him using his ego to uh, imprison Daniel and to, and to have Daniel killed. Now, verse 10 is important. Let's check verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I want you to notice something. Daniel not only defied this edict, but he did so with maximum visibility. He did it in such a way that it would be seen. So he was uh, making a statement, right? He, he defied the edict openly, uh, and so this was a form of protest. Now, Daniel's prayer habit wasn't new, right? I mean, it said that he had done this previously. So it wasn't something that he just all of a sudden discovered this new prayer commitment in order to defy the king. But neither did he alter his previous routine, right? So he, he did what he had always done previously, and he did not alter his, his actions in order to accommodate anybody. So he wasn't picking a fight. Now, the satraps and the high officials, they knew that was what Daniel's habit was, and that's how they were able to use his habits against him, use his religion against him. Now, you might think, why did he have to make a statement of it, though? I mean, he still could have prayed to God in the quiet of his own heart, right? He could have, you know, just closed the window and, you know, knelt down before God when nobody was looking. So couldn't he just pray alone? Couldn't he just pray quietly when no one would see? Why did he have to do so in a way that made a statement? Why did he uh, do this uh, in, in such a way that it became a form of protest? Now, that would have been easier. It's always easier whenever, you know, nobody knows what you believe and nobody sees you living out your faith. Nobody gets persecuted for keeping their faith private, right? I mean, like, people are persecuted whenever they make their faith public. They live it out in some way. So Daniel's faith was not merely this private heart religion. Daniel's God rules openly and gloriously over all the nations. And this, is, this very fact is acknowledged throughout the book of Daniel. So he's not, he's not merely just quietly, privately praying to God when no one can see. It's like the book of Daniel declares in many ways and all throughout the book that God rules over all the nations, even the nation in which God's people are in exile. So, so Daniel was, was not going to, to just kind of keep things quiet or private. And besides, you know, if Daniel had backed down, what do you think would happen? 
Daniel was a public official, right? Everybody would have known who Daniel was. I mean, one of God's people is number two in charge of the whole kingdom. So Daniel was a big deal. And so if Daniel backed down, everybody would know it. And then it would discourage the other people from also um, acting in obedience to their faith. And so Daniel was in a very unique position to demonstrate leadership, to, to exercise his faith publicly, visibly, and to provide a model for people to follow, not only at that time, but for us also, right? I mean, like he is, he is an example for us of faithfulness in public. So if he backed down, he would, he would not only have discouraged his own people, but he would answer to God for that. God gave Daniel this position of power and influence to be used, to be spent, right? To, to be exercised in such a way that it, it, uh, it, it is faithful to God and also he's able to live his faith in a way that encourages other people to do the, sa- do the same. Excuse me. So Daniel's put into this position for this sort of time. It was for this kind of moment that God gave him this position, and it was a time for him to step up to the plate and show courage. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Surprise, surprise. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? Then anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. I mean, these guys are so clever. I mean, they're... What a bunch of whiny <laughs> little twerps these guys are. I mean, just so, so sneaky. So they sprung their trap, right? They, they, they caught Daniel exactly as they expected to. And evidently, Darius was in a weak position politically. He was not able to overturn an edict, even though he was the one that set the edict to begin with. I mean, you'd think that he could set a law that had a... You know, he could overturn his own law, but evidently he can't. So even though it's like he'd searched all day for a loophole, even. All right, so verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. I mean, Daniel was his star pupil. I mean, it was... The king was really distraught because he's losing like a a right-hand man that had been so valuable. But the law of the Medes and the Persians, what are you going to do? So uh, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, 
the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. What a comeback! He was safe. He was fine. He spent a night in the den with the lions. And if, if you uh, know Veggie Tale standard version of the Bible, uh, he had pizza. Uh, I guess they ordered uh, pizza delivery. Maybe you're too young for that. Um, but, you know, he was fine. You know, he spent the night with the, the lions and he didn't hurt him at all. God demonstrated power by sending an angel to, to stop the mouths of the lions from overpowering him and, and killing him. Verse 24, the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Listen to this. Peace. This is the pagan king saying this. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions... So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Daniel was faithful in the midst of suffering, the midst of persecution for his faith, the fear that would have been on him as he, as he faced the den of lions, and God delivered him from every danger. And once again, a pagan king is found to be praising and acknowledging the supremacy of the God of the Jews. Friends, this is the kind of bold, uncompromising, yet humble courage that we need in the modern world. Now, let's make three connections, three application points from this story as it relates to suffering and persecution. Okay? Suffering and persecution. First one, every Christian should expect to suffer for their faith. Every Christian should expect to suffer for their faith. In a fallen world, suffering is a part of life. So in this sense, just being a part of a fallen world, both Christians and non-Christians will suffer. It's normal. However, Jesus invaded our fallen world, and he's taken us captive, and so we are his. We belong to Christ. He is our Lord, and so we belong to him, body and soul, every part. So as Christians, then, we have signed on to Jesus' countercultural revolution. Our highest allegiance is to Christ, and he is our Lord and our King. 
And so whenever the world's priorities come into conflict with God's priorities, we can't simply go with the flow. We have to resist, just as Daniel did. And sometimes that resistance will lead to pain. Sometimes there's suffering whenever we resist the world's priorities. Sometimes we'll be required to suffer as a result of our faith. Now, Jesus said this in uh, John chapter 16, verse 33. Listen to what he said. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So in me, in Christ, you have peace. But we're in Christ in the world. And in the world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, for I've overcome the world. That's what Jesus said. Having peace with Christ means having trouble with the world. It's that simple. Having peace with Christ will mean having trouble with the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, not just believe in the inner quiet of your heart, but if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, if you desire to do that, you'll be persecuted. That's, that's one of the promises of God that you don't put on a coffee mug. <laughs> You're not going to drink that in the morning and like, ah, oh, the promises of the Lord. Indeed, we will be persecuted, but that's a promise. Uh, Philippians 1, 29 and 30, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Not suffering just as all people suffer, but suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Last one, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. Share in suffering... As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So the word share is, uh, it indicates that there's a, there's a communal aspect to suffering. Like we, we share in this. You might have your share. I might have my share. Jesus had the, the, the ultimate share. But we all share together in the suffering uh, of Christ. And we share as a good soldier of Christ. So the simple fact is that Christians are required to suffer for their faith. And that fact is assumed on every page of the New Testament. I, what I just read to you are a few of the ones, you know, a few highlights, a few pithy uh, statements. But it's, it's everywhere all through the New Testament, just the, the fact that we suffer for our faith. And that suffering can come in, from any number of directions. Wherever the world's priorities come into conflict with God's priorities, and we resist those priorities, there is an element of suffering that we may experience. It could be from your employer. It could be from a family member or your whole family. It could be from some of your neighbors. It could be some of your friends. It could be from the government. We see examples of all of these within the Scripture. And the suffering will not merely be for the things that you believe in your heart. What you believe in your heart and nobody knows about, you know, whatever, you're probably not going to have to suffer for, for any of those things. But it's, it's, it's the way that you live your life. 
that whenever you actually choose to act in a particular way that aligns with your Christian beliefs, that's when the suffering comes into play because the world is going to fight back. The, the world is trying to, to press you into its image. So let's talk about our modern context. Where, where, where is it most likely that this will hit home for each of us? It seems to me that the most likely place where we'll suffer for our faith is where Christianity collides with secularism, where our faith collides with secularism. So I mentioned this, the first sermon in our series a few weeks ago. I mentioned that secularism has become a dominant religion. It's like a religious belief in our society. Now, it's not officially recognized as a religion, and that's why it's so clever. But it, has a, it takes on a religious flavor. It's a religion of irreligion or a religion in disguise. It's an implicit type of religion. Now, secularism now occupies the heart space within our culture that was previously occupied by the Christian faith. Even for people that didn't actually walk with God or, or, or prescribe to the Christian faith, there was this heart space that, that was occupied by either a, like a disbelief in the Christian God. So it's like the God that people didn't believe in was the ver- Christian God, right? Is the Christian version of God. That, that that's, it's like, oh, I don't believe that, but still, it's, it was, it's, a, it's a heart space that secularism now occupies. So in the modern world, secular people, and this could even be atheists, they can act with a sort of religious devotion. And people that follow this secular religion follow it without even realizing that they're doing it. And so for this reason, there's a level of passion for their beliefs that rival anything that we'd read about the English Puritans, you know, like the, the Salem Witch Trials or the Scarlet Letter, all these you know, stories of like the old Puritans and their, you know, kind of some of the ways that they were really oppressive with their beliefs. It's like you see a, a secular version of very oppressive practices now in our day. I mentioned a couple weeks ago these yard signs that, you know, a lot of people, especially in my neighborhood, a lot of people have these yard signs that'll say, in this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. And that's a creed. It's a, it's a statement of religious conviction. Um, it's a code of ethics, right? So, Political activists then will want to enforce that code of ethics with purity laws. And whoever violates the purity laws, they need to be punished. Or if they speak against the purity laws, well, then they're committing blasphemy. They don't call it blasphemy, but that's what it is. You can't say that. There are things in our culture now that you're just not allowed to say. And I'm like, if there are things that you just simply cannot say, that's a blasphemy law. So we have, we have secular blasphemy laws. Now, the god of secularism is the state. The state is, is the biggest thing that, that we can think of. And so the god of secularism is the state, so the government. And, and if you'll notice this happening in our culture where the government is looked to as the answer or solution to all of our problems. So if there's a problem in your life, regardless of what it is, you know, it's always the government needs to come up with some solution for it because the, god, the government is, is, uh, is the god of, the, of secularism. This ethical code of secularism, it's enforced and promoted through cultural messaging. So like pop culture, entertainment, things like that. And then it's also uh, promoted in academic environments and universities. 
So like beliefs that I just mentioned, like on the art science, it's a, it's a form of orthodoxy on, um, in college campuses to a large degree. And then we have our version of like holy days and, you know, these sacred feasts that we'll have. And, you know, probably the most obvious example of this is June, where it's LGBTQ Pride Month. And it, there's a religious fervor behind, you know, this Pride Month that happens every June. So, um, you know, in social media, you have like digital Pharisees. You know, it, it could just be a bot or an algorithm, but there are still like keywords that are you know, flagged for false information because it's like, well, you're not allowed to say that. And so it's like a Pharisee, you know, it's kind of following you around, listening to everything you say and like ready to, you know, to smack you for stepping out of line. And so people's language is being controlled. People have to alter what they say to not violate the speech codes. All of this to promote this ideological conformity. And this is secularism. It's, it, it is a religious type of devotion now, at the ground level, where many of you may experience this, it could be in like a diversity, equity, and inclusion, inclusion training at work, where it's not merely about interpersonally, you know, being understanding and tolerant of one another, but there's an ideology that everyone must conform to that goes beyond merely interpersonal workplace dynamics. I, mean, I mention all of these things because resisting that, resisting secularism, I think that's the most likely place where we're going to have to suffer for our faith. There's going to be a line that you're not going to be willing to cross. And if you haven't got there yet, eventually that line will appear before you. And you'll either have to back away from that line and adjust yourself, or you'll have to say, I'm not going to cross that line. And so this is the most likely place, I think, where many of us will have to face some degree of suffering. I've talked to a handful of uh, people in recent months where um, an issue of transgenderism in the workplace or in a school has showed up on your radar, and then some of you have, have tried to make, have had to make a decision. You know, what do I do about this person that I'm, I'm being told I'm required to interact with this person in a particular way, and that you know, like, this goes against my Christian beliefs, so what do I do? And, and you're torn, right? It's difficult, because on the one hand, this, these are people that you care about, right? We don't hate people. It's like these are people that you care about. You want them to know Jesus, to find redemption and hope in the gospel. You want to love them well. But on the other hand, there's this pressure to accommodate them in ways that violate your conscience. So what do you do? Well, these are Daniel moments. And I'm, I'm not going to prescribe for everybody, uh, well, this is what we all must do. I'm not going to say that because they require lots of contextual wisdom and circumstances that you can that you can discuss with other people, but, but there is going, the, the, it is a Daniel moment. It's a moment where you're having to choose, what will I do? Will I oppose or resist or protest this imposition upon my conscience? That's where courage is needed. And when you act in courage, it might cost you something. And whatever that cost is, will register as suffering. And depending on the nature of that suffering, it could even be classified as persecution. Now, some of you might think, like, Michael, why are you bring up this stuff? You're stoking fears. You're making people scared. And, and I'm like, that's not what I'm doing. That's not, I'm, I'm not telling you to be afraid. I'm telling you to be prepared. And there's a big difference between the two. Why would Jesus tell us, hey, in the world you're going to have tribulation? Why would Jesus say that? Was Jesus fear-mongering? No, of course not. 
Jesus was saying, hey guys, be prepared. This, is, this will cross your path at some point, and if you want to be faithful to me, it might hurt you whenever you, whenever you stand firm in your beliefs. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Be prepared, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You don't need to be afraid. All right, uh, second point. Suffering is God's instrument of sanctification. Suffering is God's instrument of sanctification. So whenever Christians suffer, it, the, it, it reveals who you truly are. Suffering clarifies things in your life. And generally speaking, there's two options. One option is it'll draw you nearer to Christ. And the other option is it'll pull you further away from Christ. Satan obviously wants the second option. So what Satan will do is try to weaponize your pain or weaponize your desire to avoid pain to tempt you to sin or to pull you away from the Lord. It's the same strategy that he used with Job. If you know the story of Job, Satan killed his family, uh, destroyed his livelihood, took away his health, all in an attempt to get him to abandon his faith, to get him to deny deny God. So it's a, it's a simple strategy to, to, use God, to use our pain to get us, to, to tempt us to sin. But God preserved Job, and God will do the same for you. God will preserve you through those trials. But it is a, it is a simple strategy. Satan will tempt you to sin or to draw you away from Christ by making it painful to obey. So if you have a decision in front of you, well, the, the faithful option the option that requires courage that is most aligned with my convictions, that's the painful option that's going to hurt. But there is this alternative where I might compromise a little. I might just sort of back away from my beliefs. I might find a loophole to get, to get out from under it. And that's a more of a pain-free or at least a less uncomfortable option. And, and Satan will use that. He'll take that to try to tempt you. To, to pull you away from the Lord by making the circumstance painful. I mean, it's natural as, as human beings. We want to avoid pain as much as we can. So whenever we're not prepared for it, so if, if you don't have a, a, some kind of theology of suffering, if you don't have a, a place within your heart to, for suffering to land that doesn't cause you, doesn't, doesn't like, it's not a critical uh, or does it cause you like a, to, to abandon your faith or does it cause your whole faith to, to crumble? You need, if you have a place for that suffering to land, then you can be prepared for it. But many Christians don't have a place for it to land. And so they're unprepared for it. They, they don't know what to do with it. And that's why we have, I think in the modern day, as, as the heat generally is kind of turning up on Christians, it's becoming a little more costly, a little, a little more uncomfortable to live our faith publicly. We're seeing an increase of ex-evangelicals, where people who leave the Christian faith because, and of course, they'll, a lot of times what they'll say is that there's some issue of suffering in their life that they could not reconcile with their faith. When we're hurting, the temptation is to think, well, God's abandoned me. I'm tempted to despair or to get angry, turn bitter. But it doesn't have to be this way. 
Because Jesus gives us the strength and the resources to be strong in the midst of our pain. So Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Meaning God draws near in the pain. So the pain that you fear, while it's good to avoid it, I'm not saying it's, you know, we're not supposed to embrace or, or to desire pain. That's not what I'm saying. But if pain comes, we don't have to be afraid of it. And we, it, our pain can have a meaning. We can assign a meaning to it. And that is, this pain is doing something good. God will use the hurt to draw me near to him. God will sanctify me. God will make me more like Jesus in the midst of the pain. I was watching a video um, a while back. There was a woman, she was speaking at Google. And in this, uh, in this talk she gave, she, she was talking about suffering. And she made a reference to Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a Jew who was imprisoned during a Nazi concentration camp. And so he ended up getting out and writing about his experience. And uh, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And she, she referenced a, a passage of this book where Frankel was, was mentioning the thing that helped him fight off despair while he was in the midst of excruciating pain, extraordinary suffering. And the thing that helped him was the meaning he assigned to the suffering. So his reasoning is that the suffering itself is out of his control. I can't do anything about the fact of my suffering, but I can control the meaning I assign to the suffering. I can, I can control what the suffering represents in my life. I can let it destroy me and just totally be given over to despair, or I can allow the suffering to shape me in some way. Christians, our faith tells us that our suffering is never in vain. You never suffer for no reason. There's always something that God can and will do in you and through you in the midst of that pain and even because of that pain. God uses our suffering as an instrument of sanctification. And ultimately what God is doing in our pain is drawing us nearer to Christ. God will make you more like Jesus in the midst of the pain that you experience. That's, that's what he's doing. I read something similar in a book recently um, where it says, if your meaning in life is to know, please, and emulate, and be with God, if know, please, emulate, be with God, if that's your meaning in life, then suffering can actually enhance your meaning in life because it can get you closer to him. Suffering can help you accomplish the goal of the Christian life, and that's what God does with it. Paradoxically, suffering is linked with joy in Scripture. It's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. But all throughout Scripture, suffering and joy are linked. God uses suffering to increase joy. Let me, I want to read to you four Scriptures, four examples of this, because I want you to see uh, this connection. So I'm going to read four Scriptures, and I want you to pay attention to a link between suffering and joy. Suffering and joy. Here's the first one. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. There's joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, not if, but when all these various kinds of trials come your way, when that happens, I mean, do this. If you're in a trial right now, like make it a discipline. Okay, this trial, I want to count it joy. I want to count this joy. I'm going to regard it as joy. Why? He says this. For you know, there's the meaning, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the next one. This is 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, there's the joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, here's the meaning, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your, fa- of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's the last one, a couple chapters later, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. So if you're going through a trial right now, did it surprise you? It shouldn't have. Don't be surprised. If you're prepared for it, you won't be surprised. So don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Of course it's not strange. If our Lord and Savior suffered, are we better than he? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All four of these texts that I read to you about suffering also call us to find joy in that suffering. Because all of our suffering has a goal. Our suffering has a meaning. It has a purpose. We can rejoice in our pain because it means something. Jesus is using that suffering to draw you near. Jesus is using that suffering to transform your life and make you more like him. So our pain, it's an entry point into deeper union with Christ. And it teaches us to depend on God more fully. I went through a, one of the biggest trials of my life a few years ago. We are just in you know, intense pain. I felt misunderstood and attacked. You know, you, you make tough decisions and you take a lot of criticism. And sometimes whenever you're try, the people that you're trying to help, um, they don't recognize that you're you're doing something for their good, and they feel threatened by that. And so when I look back now on that season of my life, I can look back and say, that was a season where God taught me to pray, unlike any other time in my life. I mean, there was a, there was a nearness to the Lord because the suffering kind of shrunk my world and clarified my priorities. Suffering will do that. Suffering will just sort of cause what's most important to bubble to the top. And if Jesus is what's most important to you, 
Jesus will bubble to the top and he'll become more beautiful and glorious and extraordinary to you. Here's a third application point. Suffering for doing good is different than suffering for sin. There's an important distinction between suffering for doing good and suffering for sin. So Daniel publicly defied an edict, and it was a form of protest against an unjust law that specifically targeted his faith. So he wasn't seeking persecution. He wasn't picking a fight or giving people extra reason to hate him. Daniel was always respectful. Even while he was defying kings and taking courageous and bold stands against tyranny, he was never reckless. He was never needlessly combative. But also, he never backed down. And so he suffered for doing good because he was taking a righteous stand in a hostile environment. I want to, I want to show you this from 1 Peter 4. And I want to look a little bit further. This, I read the first part of this text earlier, and I want to keep going. This is 1 Peter 4, verse 14. In the context of suffering, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's persecution, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, that's a blessing. The spirit of God rests upon you. So in this text, Peter's talking about suffering as a Christian. Suffering, being insulted, being disliked because of your Christian beliefs and practices. Now, the next verse, let's keep going. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So if you're suffering just because you're being opposed, that does not mean you're being persecuted. Being opposed as a Christian is not necessarily persecution. Sometimes people can willfully stir up trouble because they enjoy the self-righteous feeling of being persecuted. In our culture, being a victim is like a status symbol. And if you can be a Christian victim, if you could be like a persecuted martyr, well, then there is a kind of notoriety that you can get in that. We have a version of this in the Christian world. Inviting persecution on yourself in order to enjoy the status of victimhood does not honor the Lord. That's baiting somebody into sinning against you. If you're trying to pick a fight in order to get them to persecute you. That's not what Daniel did. They'd already sinned against Daniel. They'd already hatched their plan. So he wasn't picking a fight so he can be like, woe is me. You know, look at my persecution. No, it's like, it was a genuine thing. Uh, here, let me read you a quote. This is from Gene Veith. Um, it says, crosses, like cross, I bear your cross. Crosses are never self-chosen. Choosing to flog yourself is not a cross. Nor is choosing a course of action that you know will get you into trouble just for the self-righteousness of being persecuted. Crosses we choose are not crosses. The things that go against our will are the crosses we have to bear. You know, Paul mentioned this in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul knew that there was a such, a, such a thing as a martyr who would be burned for his faith and do so without a genuine motive. There's no honor for self-appointed martyrs 
and there's no reward for seeking persecution. Now, verse 16 of 1 Peter 4, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, so if anybody suffers sincerely, right, as a, as a sincere manifestation of, of their godly life, that person, let him not be ashamed, but let him, give, let him glorify God in that name. So suffering that honors Christ is sincere, and it's not seeking the self-glory of martyrdom, but the glory of Christ. Now, let me give you the flip side of this. We should not dismiss the persecution that other people experience as simply them playing the victim. I've seen this happen too. Just because you disagree with the stance that somebody else is suffering for, that doesn't mean that their suffering is illegitimate or that they're just playing the victim. Some recent examples, you know, uh, during the pandemic, um, John MacArthur, um, Bible teacher, um, guy out in California, he famously kept his church open whenever the state of California was requiring churches to close. Now, during that time, there were a lot of Christians who would pile on the criticism along with the secular media talking about, oh, how, should, how dare he do this? You know, he's just trying to get attention. You know, he's, he's wanting to get people's tithe money because they won't tithe unless they show up on Sunday, things like that. And so they were, uh, they were slandering him. They were accusing him of acting in, in a duplicitous way and not as a sincere expression of his belief. It's fine if they disagree with his decision. He's in a different context. You can disagree with somebody's decision, but we should not join in the persecution and add to the chorus of criticism against people whenever they are suffering in some way for a stand that you disagree with. So we need to be careful not to judge people unfairly if they're suffering for taking a stand that you wouldn't take. All right, so we've, we've seen that the call to suffer well is an essential part of our faith, right? We're called to die every day. So a we die to ourselves whenever we first commit to follow Christ, but it's not just the one time that we do it. It's a daily death. We die multiple deaths, in a sense, for our faith. We die every day. We might even suffer every day. But paradoxically, we've also seen that the Christian life is not misery, even if you are required to suffer persecution or suffer in some other way for your faith. That doesn't mean that we live a life of misery or drudgery or, or fear of what might happen because the Christian life gives us the resources to cope with that pain, to cope with the realities that we face, and even assigns a proper glorious meaning to the suffering that we encounter. So we can find hope and comfort in the fact that God himself is not immune to suffering, and even our redemption in Christ came as the result of his suffering. God suffers. God suffers with us. God suffers for us. We share in his suffering. And Jesus' suffering was, took place in order to bring our suffering to an end. And until the end comes, we know that our suffering is not in vain, but it has a purpose and a meaning just like the suffering of Jesus. And not only that, our suffering is temporary. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So our suffering, temporary, won't last forever. God is doing a glorious thing in it. Let's pray as we close. Our Father, um, we, we worship and glorify you as the God who suffers, who suffered in our place.
as the God who is with us in our suffering and who assigns meaning to our suffering, that sanctifies us through our suffering. We thank you, God, for drawing near to us. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are suffering right now for any reason. They're just, they, they come this morning with pain, with a burden, and they need to lay it at your feet and be comforted in the spirit in their suffering. I ask you that you will draw near to them now and use that suffering to refine their priorities and help them to see Christ more gloriously and clearly. I also pray, Lord, for those that are facing some type of pain or persecution for their faith, or they're, if they're not in the midst of it, they're faced with a choice currently, or maybe they will face a choice in the near future. Lord, I pray for your wisdom of your spirit, for godly counsel to enter their life, to help them navigate those challenges so that they can maintain their faithful, uh, maintain their faith in a way that honors you and doesn't compromise their conscience. But Lord, I pray for the strength of the spirit that, that we have in Christ, that we can, we can face difficulty and challenge and even pain with courage, with a heart full of faith and even rejoicing, knowing that you draw near to us in our pain and that you are doing something beautiful in our pain. We thank you, Jesus, that you suffered for us, you suffer with us. And it is through your suffering that we rejoice and that we have eternal life and communion. And it is the suffering of Jesus that we celebrate as we come to the table. So help us to delight in your faithful suffering now as we, as we come to the table and worship. We pray these things in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.